Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. As you can tell, I have laryngitis. I woke up yesterday, I couldn't speak at all. And the doctor gave me a shot in the sideways um, with steroids so that I could make some sounds happen today. Um, Thanks for listening. As always, I have a great episode this week. Anthony Diggs, he was at Standing Rock. He's uh, part of Veterans Stand, and he has a firsthand account of what it was like at Standing Rock. He and his fellow veterans uh, held their ground and protected the Native Americans who were there in peaceful protest. Um, And we talked about PTSD as well and cannabis. We had all sorts of things to talk about. Um, so really, I think it's a really great episode. And I'm, uh, I was re- quite lucky because when I was in Los Angeles, as y'all know, um, for those who have been going from week to week, I interviewed uh, Michael Wood Jr. about civilian policing when I was in LA. And Anthony just happened to be at Michael's house so Michael said, hey, why don't you talk to Anthony too? And Anthony was up for it. So uh, that was that's what happened. I did put some links for this episode, of course, on heyhumanpodcast.com. And uh, as usual, you can email me, susan at heyhumanpodcast.com. I'm gonna, I just want to let you know also on Halloween, on Tuesday, I'm doing a special episode. So keep an eye out for that. Um, I know it comes on a Tuesday and I normally put these out on Thursdays, but, um, so yeah, on October 31st, on a Tuesday, there's going to be a special episode along with the regular Thursday. So, all right, enough of that. Um, thank you, uh, for listening and I hope you enjoyed this episode with Anthony Diggs. Anthony Diggs. Yes. Thank you for having me. I, well, thank you for being on Hey Human. I really appreciate it. You were you were strong armed. A <laughs> little Michael, bit, yeah, a little Michael bit, Lynn. yeah. Only because I didn't see it coming, but I'm more than happy to I talk. I didn't see it. We're in it together. Exactly. So. First so, of all, yeah. thank you for your service. Oh, you're very welcome. So you are a former Marine. Yep. Yes. Mm-hmm. And Veteran Stand is your baby. Exactly. You did you you created it? Um, actually, when it was created, I was the communications director, okay. and through the changes, through all of the madness that happened during the eviction of Oshetti Sakoin, yeah. I became rock. yeah, you know, yeah. I, I, I kind of took more of a managerial the, role. Okay. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, yeah. Well, so yeah, we'll start from the beginning. Let's start from the beginning. Veteran stands creation it was because of what? Well, in December of 2016, well, starting in November, um, I turned on the news, CNN, I saw attack dogs biting an elderly woman on the news. I had heard about Standing Rock, uh, but I was like, okay, you know, I'm working for myself at this point, like I can, like ended my, my lease, started looking for how do I get out of here? and over to North Dakota. And where were you? I was in San Clemente, which is, we're in Los Angeles now, about two hours south of here. Um, And I found a Facebook group. There was like 12 people in it saying, hey, we're veterans who are looking to go to Standing Rock. Uh, One of them was Michael, the other was Wes Clark Jr. 
and I said, hey, I want to be a part of this. I asked to be, you know, more than just a volunteer. I'd like to help organize. And yeah. they had faith in me and made me the communications director. So I handled a lot of the interviews and, you know, through that time on. And, and what was their, their ideal? What was the, the purpose? The ideal was to answer the call of the Standing Rock Sioux, um, who essentially, they asked us to come out, stand in solidarity with the indigenous community and the water protectors who had gathered there. Um, so then it became, how do we get more veterans? Um, how do we, you know, responsibly manage and fund, you know, mm -hmm. this number of veterans going out there? Uh, we got news interviews. Uh, the first, after the first CNN interview, we went from having a group of 60 people to like 1,800 people. Um, and then it was 2,000 people, and then it was like 2,100 people. And we're like, okay, like we're going to stop here, you know? so we can you know this is a lot of people you know a lot of resources um and when we arrived there were 4500 plus veterans just in addition to the rosters that we had created they heard that veterans were coming out so by the time we got there there was 4500 people which is you know uh, a standing army in a lot of ways and the news uh took interest to it which was beneficial because they had been more or less turning a blind eye to the situation there previously. And then it's they hear veterans are coming. <laughs> exactly, yeah. right? Yeah. The So for the for the listeners that don't know, um, what is Standing Rock? So Standing Rock is a reservation in North Dakota. Um, ETP, Energy Transfer Partners, um, the way that the story, which is sad and it's kind of the, in a tale as old as time, is Energy Transfer Partners wanted to build a pipeline which would have cut through the north end of Bismarck and gone through the Missouri River. And the Army Corps of Engineers said, no, this poses too great of a risk to our natural resources, it's too close to public lands, all of this kind of stuff. So they moved it downstream to where it posed the exact same risks environmentally in terms of public health to the people of the Standing Rock Reservation uh, who had no say in it. Uh, and when the people there gathered to say, hey, like not only are you putting us at risk, you are violating treaty laws, the Treaty of Fort Laramie, um, 1868. Um, and when they stood on their land in ceremony to say, you know, hey, this is our land, this is all of our water, all of our earth, we need to protect the best interests of the people and our community. They had attack dogs unleashed on them. They being? Oh, the indigenous community there and no, the water no, no. protectors. No, 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 I mean, who, who's attacking them? Oh, who, well. They, they, the police force came The out police on the force, side of by the time the camp was evicted, there was a multi-law enforcement agency task force. There's more than 11 agencies out there. There was the National Guard. There was the Federal Bureau of Investigation. There was the BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is essentially U.S federal agents on sovereign land, whole complicated and long messed up history of that. Yes. Um, the Department of Homeland Security. And technically illegally, correct? I mean, the, to, well, to be basically an army against an army of, of the people versus the, the powers that be. Yeah, but they were not. They weren't. Were they not legally allowed to be? Uh, they being the um, well. There's the, the difference force. between legal and lawful. And, I mean, the sad thing is, is with a lot of legislations passed post 9-11, mm -hmm. anything can be justified. 
uh, especially where like at the end, you know, I was stopped on Highway 1806. It's one of the roads they closed down, which went from um, Ochetti Camp, the main camp in Standing Rock, to Bismarck, the quickest route. So if we needed to get supplies, if we needed to get people medical attention, they closed that off. So you had to drive an extra hour through, at the time, extremely dangerous roads, blizzards, you know, ice. Mm -hmm. um, and the ranger that stopped me on there, I was actually with uh, Samuel Ronan, who was running for Congress in Ohio. He came to the airport, wanted to see, you know, what was going on. So I drove the long way to get him, and I said, hey, do you want to drive through the roadblock to see like what happens so you can get this like real idea of what is happening there um, get pulled over get berated by law enforcement agents in the National Guard who had like you know the National Guard they had you know M16s um, and the roadblock by that point had changed earlier in December we had driven through it and it was you know uh, state troopers like a few by the time I went back with Sammy Ronan it was completely militarized National Guard was there concrete barriers and the trooper called me an eco-terrorist which it, and, I mean, and that, those terms were flying around out there. Because which, that allows them to, to get around the exactly, laws. Exactly. So when we talk about are they there legally, lawfully, well, they can justify whatever they need to justify under the name of there is a potential terrorist threat here. Right. Um, so and Patriot we Act saw it. That, uh, the Patriot Act, the uh, uh, NDAA, the Homeland Security Act, and all of these little things that have been attached to bills that seem like they're completely unrelated to Homeland Security. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so then we, we talk about, you know, we have uh, the local police, the state police, we have federal agencies, we have the National Guard, and we have private security firms, uh, one of which was Tiger Swan, which The Intercept did a big expose on. Um, they were supplying information to like the CIA, FBI, Homeland Security, Defense Intelligence Agency, and the documents that they were sharing said explicitly that the people in the camp were taking after jihadi extremists, that there was a, a legitimate terror threat. So it's like this narrative that was created to, and ultimately, you know, what for this pipeline to be built, which stands to make trillions of dollars follow the um, money Always. yes follow yeah the money. follow you know definitely. So basically you have defcon 5 on one side and native americans on the other going don't fuck up our land yeah. this is how we live this is our unarmed native americans right peacefully gathered in ceremony like singing songs which by the way being is, shot yeah. with water cannons in below freezing weather mm -hmm. which as far as i'm concerned is attempted murder mm -hmm. Like, and the dogs and the and yeah and the dogs and you know the people who were snatched out of their not only tents but their hotel rooms in the middle of the night uh the people who were beaten with clubs a reporter in his 60s during the eviction had his hip broken by a police officer unarmed you know completely unarmed they took him threw him on the ground broke his hip and his phone was still this is uh you could find it on youtube uh we put it up there actually um, you hear the police officer like it's like it's really like one of the saddest things like I I've experienced during the entire time out there because like you see somebody's will be broken through threat of violence uh, actualized violence and harm like 
the you know the guy going from being like hey like you know why don't you put down your badges and stand with us this is all of our water you know what what are your children going to drink you know etc to him being on the ground with a broken hip a police officer saying like this is what you get for you know six months of this da 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 and the guy like being like like you know, like in tears saying like I'm sorry please help me I'm in pain I need to like oh it's like it's crazy it's crazy and you know a lot. You know, a lot of people that were out there, a lot of them experienced it, have shared similar stories as this one. But I still think the public does not have a clear idea of the level of force and violence and, like, psychological, like, torture, essentially, that was, you know... Yeah, military tactics against civilians. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so you... As... Psyops, you know, yeah. we call them, you yeah. know, but... Yeah. And so you as veterans, because veterans have, have made the commitment to, to serve foreign and domestic soil, you said we need to be there and help protect these people. Absolutely. So what kind of opposition were you met with when you did that? Well, you know, we had the FBI break into our hotel room um, while we were at camp. Uh, we had, you know, I was, I was detained. I wasn't arrested and I was fined, which I didn't pay. I just well, won't go back to North Dakota. Um, there were people who, you know, like not just veterans. I mean, the thing is, it's like, it, it's not so much like what happened to us as veterans. Like we're used to standing, you know, in the face of sure. adversity and, you know, you know, being there to help create solutions and actualize solutions like what happened to the community there uh the indigenous community and the community that came from all over you know more than 200 native tribes had representatives you know brought their flags joined there um but yeah like you know a young woman who was blinded in one eye because they shot a smoke canister at her which is supposed to hit the ground Smoke goes in the air, but they duct taped it closed so it wouldn't explode. And they aimed it at her face and blinded her for life in her eye. Um, there were 80 plus year old women who were arrested and not treated, uh, you know, kindly or even safely during those arrests. Uh, there were people who had psychological breakdowns because... They were living in absolute fear of saying, hey, we were invited here by a tribe to be on tribal land, peacefully in Sarah. Why in the middle of the night are law enforcement agents coming in on snowmobiles and snatching people out of their tents? Why are there floodlights always directed at us? Why are there police on militarized vehicles with machine guns? Like when we are completely unarmed, have no intentions of engaging in any violence and and that, you know, as veterans, you know, that was, you know, we when we talk about, uh, you know, wanting the public to have a clear understanding of what was happening there, what still is happening there, um, we have to talk about the role that the media plays in that because one of the things that did not play to our favor was the first article that came out from CNN said veterans deploying to North Dakota as a headline and had a photo, a stock photo of some army guy in in Iraq or something or Afghanistan with a machine gun raised. So automatically people are like, wow, they're putting together an army. They're going, they're deploying 
Um, and I think, you know, you know, when we have to, we talk about, yeah, you know, the law enforcement, um, the federal government, state government, they are an issue a lot of the times when it comes to social justice movements and people achieving things that might not serve the best interests of empire or capitalism or whatever have you. But we have to talk about the role that also the media plays in sensationalizing things, um, which, you know, complicates things. I mean, if I were in the government and I read an article that says, um, you know, 2,000 plus veterans are deploying to North Dakota. Well, like, I would pass that along to somebody and say, like, have you heard about this? Like, what is going on? And then the narrative that gets built up around that, like, like that's, you know, it's 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 irresponsible and it's and it's problem, yeah, and it's yeah. and it's super problematic. And it led to, you know, a lot of us having our phones tapped, being followed around before and after we left out there. Um, just a few days ago, I had my bank account hacked into, like nothing happened, but like, these are still things that are happening, you know, to this day, even as our organization, um, you know, kind of moves away from the Standing Rock mission and onto other things, just because of our involvement, you know, I'm still speaking with people who are involved in the class action lawsuit, you know, lending my skills and, and time, you know, where I can. Um, so yeah, you know, that's, that's, it was a big issue and it clouded the idea of what was happening out there just, just as much as, you know, maybe state propaganda. Well, and I think that's really important to understand that the media's role is to sell copy that's for themselves. They're, they don't give a shit about the story they're telling really ultimately. Sure, it's... There was a time when journalism had this integrity where they were trying to tell the story of the people, but I, I think that is long past now, and they're they're just trying to sell copy. Yeah. And they want whatever the most sensational thing is that they can say. It doesn't matter which side they're falling on. It doesn't even matter if they're right anymore. It's yeah. not like they do. I'm speaking in a, gr a gross generalization, but I think an overreaching. I'm not. And yeah, I think that's what's going on. Yeah, just in general, you yeah. know, and then everybody wants to talk about like fake news and what side of the political spectrum. Well, follow do the money we... too. Who's paying? <laughs> Who are the publishers? Who? What? What is it serving them? Where are their monies yeah. coming from? Is it in their best interest to make you look bad? If is the money coming to them from some other place just because they own a newspaper doesn't mean they don't own something else. Yeah, absolutely. But people don't think that deeply into it. Yeah. I mean, I like, look at, for example, the connection between um, Philips 66, uh, one of the companies that has a large stake in energy transfer partners, and the Bismarck Tribune, which released all of the news to North Dakota, essentially, you know, regarding Standing Rock, you know, like the imprint. Um, huge conflicts of interest, you know? Huge. Huge conflicts of interest. And, like, people don't know that. And, like, we have this entirely misinformed community in North Dakota, like, who, you know, there's already a lot of racist, bigoted uh, energy directed toward the Native American community there. But on top of, you know, state-run propaganda saying these people are dangerous and causing an environmental disaster, which is why the governor 
essentially called for an eviction was to avoid an environmental disaster. Because they were saying they were being messy and leaving garbage and all that kind of, that was part of the story when that was being told. trash trucks from Bismarck were being driven into Standing Rock to dump trash in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. I don't think so they could understand. come out there and film it and say, look at what is happening. Yeah. Like, every aspect of the North Dakota state government was in cahoots <clears throat> with the folks who it was their best interest to have this pipeline go through. So, like, uh, what do we do? What do we do as people in social justice movements when, when, when we gather um, to stand in solidarity for any particular cause, we can just have the... National Guard called on us to remove us with machine guns and military vehicles. And we have the local newspapers creating propaganda to create dissent and fuel more hatred toward the indigenous community and the water protectors who had gathered there, like in that particular instance. But it happens everywhere, you know? And, and it has nothing to do, like you were saying, like where's the money going? It has nothing to do with politics whatsoever uh politicians wear whatever costume necessary you know to Whoever's increase their wealth it. and influence and so like, we can't fall into that trap it's it is uh it is it's it's above it's it is above politics on the level of what politics is intended to grant the people who participate in them uh so, yeah, I mean, I, and, you know, I asked that question, not hypothetically, but, like, I, I don't have, I don't have an answer for it, you know? Well, the things you're saying, that's a totalitarian regime, right? That's, that's a regime that is looking at the people who are trying to rise up and say, this isn't right. I mean, that's, that's what all great dystopian novels are based upon. But it's not a not it's not fiction. It's happening everywhere, yeah. and it's not, of course, just happening here in the United States. It's happening everywhere in the world. But the people in power want to stay that way. The people, the uber rich, they want to stay that way, to the cost of people that they consider insignificant. Mm -hmm. You know, then we just become spots on land. Yeah, and it's the land they want. Yeah, I know. I mean, back to Standing Rock. Treaty of Fort Laramie granted huge amounts of land to the Sioux. And then, you know, they built railroads, took more, found gold in the Black Hills, took more, created outposts, took more, needed water sources, took more. What he's saying more. is the people, so every time a resource was discovered on land that was granted to the Native Americans, the, the treaties didn't really stand up anymore. And now oil. Right? We need to transport it through Uranium, the land. We're taking oil, more. oil, I mean, you name it. Whatever resource. Uh, that's the same reason we wage war. Mm-hmm. What, what resource? There, there's not a lot of... Uh, how, is, how is that not war? You know, it's like... Oh, as, it with a reservation, it's a, it's, a, it's, a it's a sovereign war. nation. Absolutely. We sent our National Guard into a sovereign nation. Explain for the to people of, what that means. Of, what a sovereign nation It means, means they are... Their own nation They're within own the United cars? States. That's right. Yeah, and you what know. What was their police doing, by the way? Which side were they on? So, there's. It's kind of tricky, and I might not even have it right myself. But the way that it works is each, um, each 
Tribal Council on a Reservation gets to decide whether they will police themselves or have the Bureau of Indian Affairs, a federal agency, police for them. And I'm not quite sure, like, the incentives that would drive them one way or another. Maybe money, <laughs> right? Um, so um, what we were dealing with as an organization, as folks in camp, as folks who came out to helping camp that were staying in the Prairie Nights Hotel out there was the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is a federal agency. Um, and they were harassing people, um, brutalizing people, threatening people. Um, one day I had come back from camp to the hotel to drop off. It was a, I had a, somebody's laptop. And as I got out of my car, BIA, BIA agent said, he's like, where are you going? What are you doing? I could arrest you right now. You know, and like expecting to like, it's like, I, I know my rights pretty well, you know, so I told him more or less to get the hell out of here. But there are other people who can be intimidated that easily and who were and who were frightened away or who were intimidated into a state where they weren't like mentally healthy and fit to be in an environment like that at all. Um, so what they, they were what they were doing is they were being oppressive. Uh, which I, I I would say they are doing everywhere on reservations all across the United States. They are an oppressive force. Um, and, you know, controversial or not, I, I feel as if the United States government is still very much invested in the genocide of Native American people, specifically for the trillions of dollars of resources that lie beneath the reservations. And ranchers, by the way. <laughs> and, and ranchers. I mean, there was... To get fresh food from where we were in camp, we had to drive an hour. It's a food desert, you know? And and they use those tactics. They cut off your supply of exactly. food, all sorts. They, and then they cut off the road that gave us the easiest access to town to get right. the food and supplies that we needed. So, I mean, it happens like that strategically in the moment. Let's cut this freeway off, this highway off, and say that it's because of the structural integrity of the bridge or whatever, which is a complete lie. Because... <clears throat> They said it was the weight of the snow. But long after the snow was melted, the roadblock remained. Sure. Um, or, they'll, you know, it's, it's done uh, systematically where we are going to grant these people a chunk of land in an area where food can't be grown, where they're far distances from, like, distribution centers. They don't have um, the infrastructure for lines of communication, you know, mm -hmm. the whole nine. Yeah. Okay, so talk us through when you first arrived, what did you see and what was the plan for Veteran Stand? What was, you, so, you know what you're going to go into, but mm -hmm. once you get there, was it what you expected based on what you were seeing on the news or and no. what, was, what was your plan and how did you, what was your plan of attack? You know, that kind of, oh, I hate these word attack, it sounds violent, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, well, the plan was... We had sent buses, you know, uh, across the nation to pick up veteran volunteers to bus them into Standing Rock. Um, was it hard to find the veterans? <coughs> no, we had to we had to close our roster down after twenty one hundred people. They were right there going yes. Oh yeah, and then you know twenty five hundred more arrived even outside of our of our rosters to help as well. Not just Marines. This is across. No, it's Marines, Army, Navy, Coast Guard, the whole everybody. Right. You know, Air Force, 
Um, <clears throat> so the plan was um, the veterans arrive. We meet in um, it was like a, what is it called? Like more or less like the like the civic center area in the casino. And from there, we were going to go out to camp. Um, on the way, there was a blizzard, so that that disrupted some of the buses getting there on time. Um, and there were hundreds, if not a thousand plus people who arrived two days before we were planning to arrive. So <clears throat> that right off the bat caused some confusion because people got there early and went immediately into camp. Um, and then the blizzard got worse. We got there and went immediately into a more or less uh, search uh, and rescue mission for people who were either stranded on the road, stranded in Eagle Butte, South Dakota without food and supplies, or, thank you, or stranded in one of the camps on the Standing Rock Reservation. Were there a lot? There were a lot, yeah. yeah. Um, Michael and I spent the first two days not sleeping, driving trucks back and forth, picking people up, bringing them, uh, or, you know, going into the camp, checking in tents, is everybody okay? and trying to organize everybody back in one place. Um, on the second day of us being there, <clears throat> the Army Corps of Engineers made their announcement saying, we're going to deny the easement, pipelines frozen, um, pending an environmental assessment. So there was disappointment on the level of people were worked up, and I think there were a lot of people who were expecting um, a confrontation, you know, like the headlines were veterans to provide a human shield for, you know, peaceful protesters who were being attacked. And there were a lot of people, you know, 4,000 plus who were expecting that and prepared for that. And when on the second day, the pipeline was more or less frozen, um, it went immediately into <clears throat> West Clark held a ceremony with uh, the tribal council and elders there where he essentially forgave or asked for forgiveness for you know the transgressions that the united states military has you know enacted upon the native american peoples not um, you guys <clears throat> but the other guys the ones that are are basically attacking them yeah, and that had been historically you know like trail of tears andrew jackson you know, Roosevelt making the national parks, like the long history of countless abuses. Um, and from there, we went to, all right, let's get people on buses, on planes, uh, gas in their vehicles if they need to get home. And we, you know, fell right into that. People left. <clears throat> um, you know, I... Knowing how these kind of situations work, you know, the Army Corps of Engineers says we're denying the easement, the pipeline's not going through. There were 4,500 veterans there. Um, I don't think there was a coincidence there whatsoever. They knew. 4,500 veterans. There were news uh, outlets there. If the American public saw unarmed veterans being fired upon with rubber bullets or anything else attacked, it would have been a PR nightmare, not only for the state of North Dakota, but energy transfer partners, all the law enforcement agencies that were there. Um, so <clears throat> we started sending people home. Um, 
always in mind knowing that it probably won't be long before this pipeline is started up again, the construction on the pipeline. Um, fast forward six weeks later, Donald Trump's first executive memo was to expedite the completion of the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline and the Keystone XL Pipeline, which is cutting through reservation land of South Dakota. Uh, so we went back um, with fewer people this time, and we stayed until the eviction on February 23rd. Um, they, um, when I say they, you know, it's the ominous who are the they or whatever, but um, those uh, whose best interest it was in for this pipeline to be completed, essentially um, strategically announced the freezing of construction, which resulted in thousands of people from camp going home saying, oh, it's all over. <clears throat> so when it was started up again. So you're saying that in the beginning, when there was, it was a PR nightmare and all these people were around and paying attention, they said, nope, just kidding, we're not gonna do the pipeline. And then they waited for everyone to Everyone leave. to go home. And then they said, just kidding again. Exactly. We're gonna do it. Exactly. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. Um, and... That is not coincidental. That's oh, no, not, not at all. It's actually the Army Corps of Engineers has done that in the past with pipelines. The exact same thing. Big protest. Okay, environmental assessment, which is supposed to take about two years. Um, and then this executive memo that was assigned, I think it was uh, January 21st, said override the need for an environmental assessment, do it anyways. Um, luckily, now there was another lawsuit, so it is frozen again, pending another environmental assessment, but with the trillions of dollars that is, you know, stood to be made from this pipeline, I don't think it's gonna be long before they finish construction on it. That's the sad reality of the matter is, you know, we gathered thousands at times more than 10,000 people to, you know, peacefully in solidarity say, hey, this isn't cool. Um, you know, we are voicing our discontent uh, and, you know, expressing our First Amendment rights. And the National Guard comes in and law enforcement agencies come in to beat people up, arrest them. Isn't it them interesting in that they'll bring in that kind of force for a nonviolent, non weaponized protest, and yet. They won't do that when neo-Nazis are walking, screaming, blood and soil, and, mm -hmm. you know. Oh, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? I mean, what money do they stand to make off of keeping violent people out of the street? There's way more money in silencing people who have gathered peacefully to say Well, it depends together. on if the violent people are, are doing their dirty work for them, too, isn't it? <laughs> and or doing dirty work period that causes disruptions in society because i mean like <clears throat> um i'm trying to think of the way to say this like um whatever donald trump's um approval rating is like disapproval rate is like 61 percent or something like that um so the attention needs to be directed away from him as president um, and we need to stop <clears throat> um, 
viewing our problems as if they are a result of poor leadership in the United States. Like, that's what they are thinking. That's not what I think, you know. Um, and rather have us turn to each other and say, my neighbor is the bad guy. You know, my this neighbor over here is the bad guy. Uh, and it takes our attention away from... Yeah, they from, definitely want to deflect our energies away from what the problem actually is. And, yeah. And it's like, oh, you're going to say the president's trick. a racist? Well, how about we put 500 Nazis in the street and who are you going to be pointing at now? Who are yeah. you going to be gathering it's and acting against now? It's the trick in the book. It's, it's straight out of the magician's handbook. Yeah, it's straight out of, like, elementary school, schoolyard fight. Like, it's wild. And I don't know if as people, like, works. turn into adults, like, we forget that that's the way that things used to work. Like, we think, well, like, think well, we're adults. No one's going to be so childish as to try to... I think humans get complacent. I think that mm. there is... The other rhetoric that um, is pervasive in our society that, you know, is perpetuated by the powers that be is the concept that we don't have a voice, that why should I vote? My vote doesn't matter. Why? Well, shit, of course they want you to think that. Yeah. Absolutely they want you to think that the system is so corrupt, which granted it's corrupt, but still make your voice heard. Don't become yeah. a silent member. If you become silent, yeah. they've, they've got you. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I would say... That's not a conspiracy theorist. That's just a fact. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, I, I would be less uh, concerned with whether or not my vote is counted uh, as I am with whether or not any president that we've ever had in the United States of America ultimately had the best interests of human life, of, of human progression, of, of you know... Uh, a peaceful and collaborative environment for us to come together and turn into something beautiful because I've never seen it um, and it's a it's a kind of disheartening walk through history to kind of do the research and be like wow like when when was it you know the whole make America great again when was it ever great for people that looked like me for people that looked like the indigenous folks that I worked with on the Standing Rock Reservation, uh, when has it ever been a great place? And it hasn't. It hasn't been. And we have the potential for greatness. And there's greatness in the hearts of all people who, you know, want to do great and good things. Like, I believe in that and I'm hopeful. But I'm way more hopeful than I am optimistic knowing the history <laughs> of this place that we're living in. Right. But you also have to be, you have having action action over hope oh yeah action over hope well you need hope you need hope to, to act to move to action <clears throat> because when you're saying like the complacency why why are people complacent it's because they feel disempowered Hopeless. what can i do anyways exactly yeah exactly but the it's that vicious it's the it's the dragon chasing its own tail it's you know the powers that be create a society in which the disenfranchised feel disenfranchised they mm -hmm. feel hopeless they feel powerless they feel like their voice doesn't matter and as long as that illusion is is a constant then yeah. then they get to stay doing well, exactly yeah. what they want status mm -hmm. quo nothing being a, changes a broken loop just going and, and people going like and going. you and people like me or getting you know who interview people like you and those people become quite dangerous i mean maybe the most dangerous thing you can do in the world is to empower your neighbor and to like 
love your neighbor not as the dude across the street that looks like me and lives a similar life, but to love your neighbor like that homeless guy on the corner of the other side of town who's, you know, doesn't have a dollar to his name, you know, like, that's when, I mean, that's why, why do you think they killed Martin Luther King Jr.? It wasn't because... Oh, there's a pile of murders. There's a pile oh, yeah. of people that they have silenced. Malcolm X. Yeah. At the times when they murdered both of them, and by them, I mean, like, the government conspiring to get rid of these people who were bringing about huge social change. It was at a time where they were saying, this is, it's going to take everybody. Few Kennedys. It's, it's not about the black folks. It's not about yeah. the white folks. It's about, like, yo, like, we are all brothers. We all need to come together. Sure. And, and, and this Gandhi, is all in all. the mm -hmm. Kennedys, the, uh, you know, Malcolm X. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And the thing about Malcolm X is just so fascinating is there's a there's a man who they were very systematically labeled him as this uh, domestic terrorist. Mm -hmm. like, I mean, before the words existed, really. Yeah. That's how yeah. that's how he, he was would, the first Muslim, quote unquote, terrorist in the United yeah. States. You know? And he said very scary things to the to the status quo. I, by the way, anyone that hasn't read the autobiography of Malcolm X, go get it. Yeah, get it at your library. Get it, get it wherever you can get it, but read it. It's no matter which side you are on as far as any argument. That's the other thing, too. I, I was thinking about those people marching, screaming those things, and, you know, the white nationalists, and I thought, you know, I would, I would love to sit down with one of them and say, Tell me why you think the way you think. Not scream at them and just sit them down and say, why do you think the way you think? Yeah. How, what is, where do you come from, from that place? Because I know that if I was raised by whomever they were raised by, if I was in the, ex the experience of whatever their experience is, I might very well have the same thought. The only yeah. difference is I wasn't. What I think it is and what you might find out by having that conversation, it is not a matter of why do you think that way because it's there's no thought and there's no belief and their belief belief, it's they? sustained through somebody else outside oh, yes. of themselves and yes. they are you have to be taught to be hateful <clears throat> absolutely and when you when you're living in a society that when you look around and say like hey you know it's not just uh, um, an issue of like you know minorities when we're talking about like class oppression sure. saying this this world is not built after my best interests, looking out for my best interests, I feel disempowered, I don't have hope, that you want to belong into something, into anything, into any group saying, you, just like me, we can do this together, regardless of what the solution that they'll, at the end is. So That's like, how Hitler came into power. Exactly. And, and that's exactly what happened here, you know? So, like, I wonder, like, when there are 500 people with, you know, uh, white supremacist uh, symbols and torches marching through the streets saying hateful things how do we respond to that responsibly effectively with some kind of goal or solution in mind do we go out there and and scream right back at them and say not here not here or do we mm, maybe figure some kind of solution away from that march that doesn't legitimize the the empty the show pile. of what they the like, next pile of hateful people. Yeah. Like I'm not in any way, you know, like folks should be held accountable for being hateful and, and more or less terrorizing communities. Absolutely. But 
when I see the people who participate in these kind of things, uh, when I hear them speak and be interviewed, I don't see any unified, you know, education or ideology between them. Um, I don't see people that actually believe in anything at all that are, you know, uh, you know, in a panic searching for meaning and a world in which they feel like they do have a purpose. You're saying that you don't, like, they're not a hive mind, they're an individual disenfranchised? I, 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 would, I would say, yeah, absolutely. They're individually disenfranchised, looking for a hive in which they all belong. But, but the reason it won't work is because the, they don't have the individual belief. Um, they are the types of people that will bring torches into the middle of the street because someone said, meet me here and do it without asking why. Right. What are we going to achieve no, through little, this? No, no critical thinking. Yeah. And, and, it's, it's and we a, see that even on the other side when we're talking about some of these demonstrations and protests as well. <coughs> like, some people just want to show up and mm -hmm. hold a sign, you mean? Yeah. Well, they want to... Exactly. Or there are some organizers who organize things like this with no pathway to a solution, uh, with no official you know, list of demands or this is, the, this is what we want, this is what we need to change. You hear people saying... No more. This has to change. But where are the solutions? Um, um, it's, it's, it's far easier to mobilize people than it is to organize people. And we don't have a lot of leaders who are effective organizers. Anybody can mobilize. Well, that's what we learned through Standing Rock is you can go on Facebook, make a video, get two million views on it and have 4,500 veterans who will mobilize to take part in this, you know? Mm -hmm. But to get 4,500 organized, collectively educated anybody's to one place to stand for something is on a whole nother scale, way more dangerous, way more effective, um, but way more difficult to achieve. That's why things like the 9-11 event is so fascinating as far as the hive mind is a unifying source of discontent. Mm -hmm. You have, you know, in a, for a snapshot in time, didn't last long, but for a snapshot, a whole country, and in fact the world, was unified mm -hmm. against a common enemy. But yeah. then you dig a little deeper, yeah. and then shit goes off the rails. Exactly. Yeah. So the easiest thing to unite people... Uh, through his fear. Absolutely. <laughs> right? That's how, I mean, dude, that's how politicians get elected. Mm -hmm. it, unilaterally. But it's, 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 and it's, it's not a kind of uh, unitedness that serves us any good no, as it's a people. Horrible. We're united in yeah. the fact that we are afraid of our neighbor and afraid of some Middle Eastern boogeyman. Just, I mean, any time there's going to be a presidential election, take a peek at where our DEFCON level goes. Mm -hmm. And I guarantee you it goes up right yeah. before an election. Why? Because fear makes politics work. Mm -hmm. It's Wag the Dog. Yeah. Absolutely. Another great movie, by the way. Wag the <laughs> <Yeah>. Dog. <laughs> uh, so after, so you, after Standing Rock, what happens now for you guys, for Veterans Stand? What's, what's the plan? Well, through Standing Rock, um, having all of those veterans together in this like hectic, dangerous environment, I couldn't help but uh, be reminded of my personal struggles with post-traumatic stress after leaving the military because 
we saw lots and lots of signs of folks suffering from post-traumatic stress out there whether they arrived with it or if it was rekindled by seeing you know people on militarized vehicles with machine guns um not just the veterans but the people the as people well, in general yeah. exactly um but, i mean you, i mean that was a war zone it was an absolute war zone you know everything from the the vehicles to the weaponry to the the helicopters to the barbed wire and the attack dogs like and it was snowy um you know blizzards cold gray like it wasn't an environment in which people could <clears throat> deal with all of this around them yeah. and maintain a healthy state of mind yeah. um so they going were. back to like the organization versus mobilization thing <clears throat> in order for us to do missions like that effectively in the future we have to ensure that veterans have their mental and physical health needs um, taken care of through the Veterans Affairs healthcare system, which is kind of notoriously uh, overcrowded, understaffed. They have a big problem with overprescribing heavy, heavy pharmaceuticals, whether they be opioids for pain or SSRIs um, for you know depression or post-traumatic stress. So again, follow the money. Again, follow the money. Follow see that uh, Pfizer and Abby V lobby the Veterans Affairs every year to the tune of millions and millions of dollars. Um, so <clears throat> what we are doing is we are going to do a campaign which highlights how medicinal cannabis mm. can be beneficial to veterans suffering from post-traumatic stress or traumatic brain injury. So we're working with researchers from the University of Calgary. We're working with some um, advocacy uh, nonprofit groups in the United States to essentially um, urge the Veterans Affairs to allow its practitioners to recommend, we even prescribe medicinal cannabis. Decriminalizing, especially pot, decriminalizing drugs would shift so many things in this country. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And taking care of veterans' mental health as they transition from military to civilian life, <clears throat> to have veterans who are mentally and physically capable of utilizing their experiences and their skills in social justice movements would also do us a great, uh, uh, a great service as a community. I mean, right now we have, what, 50,000 homeless veterans, 22 veteran suicides a day. Um, you know, mental health, like they said something like 30% of people coming out of Operation Iraqi Freedom or Enduring Freedom um, have post-traumatic stress. And then... Understandably <clears throat> so. I When I transitioned from the military, I was given seven prescriptions in one day. I was given seven prescriptions for post-traumatic stress, for traumatic brain injury, for pain because my back was injured. Um, some, and I never... You know, because I struggle with post-traumatic stress for, I mean, I've been out since um, I, I left the Marine Corps in 2007. So for the at least half of a decade, no, I was in Iraq. Iraq. I was yeah. in Fallujah yeah. in 2004 and five, And, you know, it wasn't until I had transitioned out of the military back into civilian life and started taking these medications that the idea of ever like harming myself crossed my mind like it was the medication itself 
that, you know, I went from feeling down and, uh, you know, out of it more or less to not feeling at all. And the feeling of not feeling at all, for lack of a better way to say it, like made me consider like self-harm. Why should I be here? Because I don't feel anything anyway. So here's a, a question and this just popped in my head as you're talking. So here, here we are, we create really superhumans in, in, in a way, especially in the Marine Corps where you're, you're programmed to be killing machines. You are the first line, you arrive first, you're in the worst possible places, right? And you are not supposed to feel fear. You're supposed to be able to kill without any kind of thought about it, right? So really, you're, they're, the military is creating these superhumans, for lack of a better word. And then decommission a superhuman, what's the best way to, to decommission them but take them out really absolutely so how do we take them out well we drug the shit out of them we put them on the streets um we take away all their power because otherwise something like yeah. veteran stand could happen where suddenly the veterans go fuck this we're yeah. gonna stand up but if you're drugged out if you're depressed mm -hmm. if you're suicidal you I know, feel like it is a strategy to medicate veterans beyond their own usefulness if you decide right. not to stay in the military, you are going to be either be thrown into a world where you your needs and your lack of purpose won't really be able to be addressed. Like our society is not set up in a way to accommodate that transition from military to civilian life. But I or think you'll that's be medicated. Oh, I, I absolutely it yeah. is. It's like taking a sweet ass car and being like, let's just take the engine out when we get tired of using the car. Exactly. And we'll throw the engine away. And we'll, just and, let the and we'll say we'll, we'll have full flags being folded on the NFL, you know, like games, which the Department of Defense pays for all of all of the, the, the patriotic anything in our sporting events is comes out of the Department of Defense's budget. That's right. So Not we celebrate our veterans symbolically. Right. Um, Right. You know, this this uh, this false uh, sense of, yes, look how much we care and respect what they've done. Yeah. And then they have to figure out a way to break, yourself. break the super soldier. Otherwise, the super soldier might actually turn against us when they get home. And I mean, again, it sounds like dystopian uh, conspiracy, but I, I don't think it's that far off. I mean, I think to get if if there is a way, you know, with the VA, seemingly, you know, they, they think that uh, healing is something that can be done with a prescription. If there is a way that we can get less veterans treated and healed without having to go through these regimens of crazy pharmaceutical drugs that do everything from give people mood swings to have them consider self-harm, which is like, what are we trying to help them with? Oh, but here's another medication that will get rid of that feeling, and another one that'll, so, like I said, like seven medications, you know, um, Zoloft and Ambien, big and money so in on that. and so on. Big, you know? big money in that. So if we can create, you know, a means for veterans to heal, and then we can create a platform for them to continue to be able to serve in their communities once they're back home. I mean, like the sky, really, the sky is the limit. People are coming out of the military with, you know, four to however many years of, like, world-class training in whatever their specific, uh, you know, MOS is. And 
like we need healthy veterans we need healthy communities and it all plays together I mean, I, I often think if the pharmaceutical and they're working toward this I know but if the the pharmaceuticals could figure out you know how to take over the cannabis mm -hmm. it, it, it would all be it would already Which be Cory Booker uh, his his uh, legalization plan back doors wide open for the pharmaceutical agencies and we need to, you know, what good is it to legalize cannabis, but then have all of these laws and pieces of legislation and corporate restrictions surrounding how folks like us or, you know, people who have a legitimate medicinal need can, you know, well, have safe and available access, yeah. like, you know. Well, let's compare the opioid situation with the cannabis situation and there are people don't get horrifyingly addicted and sick and, and do terrible things on pot they eat cheetos and watch cartoons <laughs> yeah <know>? yeah totally <laughs> you know so like it's and you and know by the way i, I want to point out too that opioids no no color class whatever i mean I have family members who are highly educated with full ride scholarships that were derailed by heroin addiction after having some sort of injury that started them on yeah, Vicodin or whatever. It's you crazy. Know. It's, it's, it's a harmful, harmful thing. If, but it's if we exactly think that, what controls a nation, right? Exactly. And I'm, I'm not saying there's people out there that don't need it to manage pain. Of course. But the way that it's just dished out, That's the you problem. know, casually. Yeah. And then look at... The medicinal benefits of cannabis everything from treating alzheimer's to killing cancer cells to treating inflammation post-traumatic stress <laughs> to making clothing to making paper to making fuel you know I mean? concrete yeah. it's the everything. ultimate plant for sure but i mean there were there was big money back in the day the timber timber lobbyists were like what is mm -hmm. this no 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 the, no, the no, no, no the no, paper no. company yeah, too like, um, well the I, timber and the paper all together they're <clears> like no way we don't want this product there's a specific piece of legislation that was written by a paper company that lobbied i think in the 1920s because they had just created like some new patent for like white paper or something like that and hemp was going to be like its biggest yeah you know, competitor hemp is, is super strong it's a great renewable resource. You used to have to grow it in the United States if you had farmland. Really? In the colonies. I didn't know that. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Huh. They used it for the rigging and all of the ships. Because it's super strong. Yeah. It's, it's way stronger than regular rope, which I'm not going to lie, I don't know what rope is actually made out of other than I assume trees to some extent. Yeah. Well, I don't know how rope yeah. is made. Now I'm going to have to go look that uh, up. <laughs> How, how so the next project made? for you guys is is getting the cannabis stuff in with the veterans. Mm -hmm. right? Which is going to culminate with a workshop slash retreat where we're going to take veterans from all over the United States, weighted towards veterans in cities, counties, states that don't allow medicinal cannabis, bring them to California, um, and have like an educational like integration thing with mental health professionals. Yeah. Um, which we're going to do early 2018. Have you so, already had some uh, opposition button up against you at this level? Well, or? it is what, August 16th today, and no the campaign idea. launches <laughs> September 1st. It's 
coming. So yeah, we haven't even announced it yet. We've just you know we've created mission charters, built networks, and things like that behind the scenes. And how so can September first, we're starting. Um, if people want to help, they can go on to veterans-stand.org, um, and there's a volunteer button there. You just type in your information, and we will be sending info out to that list as we announce this campaign. Um, we're not collecting small donations for it. Uh, it's mostly going to be an awareness slash educational um, uh, campaign on one end, and then you know the more pushing the VA to uh, you know allow cannabis to be prescribed and and recommended. It seems like such a no-brainer. Oh, absolutely. I I, I feel like it is the biggest no-brainer. Um, that I've encountered in, in my times of dealing with the VA in the last 10 years. Yeah. If something arises that, uh, that you see as an issue that needs another force of protective wall, will you guys mobilize again, or is that until you deal with this other issue? Uh, I, like you, you know, if, if, we're, if, if, uh, if we are asked to, you know, like... For instance, Enbridge Line 3, I'm speaking with some of the people Tell out there. Uh, Enbridge is Line 3, uh, it's, actually, it's a pipeline, and it is right now uh, cutting through indigenous land in Minnesota, uh, 20 miles away from Lake Superior, which is 10% of the fresh surface water in the world. Uh, and they're also trying to build two sulfide mines there as well. So um, we don't have, you know, the manpower or the funding to do a mass mobilization, but in terms of helping organize um, and, you know, sharing the lessons that we learned from Standing Rock with them, right. you know, we're doing what we can. I swear, people won't be happy until this entire planet is just poisoned beyond, it's, and, the, uh, and it's people. The pipelines cutting across reservations, threatening natural resources, all over the United States and it's happening on reservations because they have no voice because they have no money and that's super unfortunate so you know we would be more than happy to amplify the voices of any community in need in the future and but... ranchers by the way that's happening to ranchers as well mm. on their lands because yeah. you know we we live in a uranium rich country and there are private citizens ranchers who own gobs and gobs of land and Hey, we want that. We want that. What do you mean? Yeah. Anthony, thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. And I'll put links on Hey Human Podcast so people can, can follow what's going on and, and volunteer and all that good stuff. I appreciate your awesome. time. Awesome. Uh, thank you. Yeah, uh, and you're welcome to come back anytime and talk about whatever's going on, you know? So, I would love to. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thanks. Bye, right. everybody. See ya.